Hey Riverbend, welcome back to another gathering from home. My name is Andrew and I am thrilled to learn the way of Jesus with you today. But before we launch in, I want to give you a quick little update about our gatherings. So um, this week, our team has been gearing up to host outdoor gatherings where we can safely socially distance in groups of 250 and still worship together as a church. But unfortunately, the venue that we had been hoping uh, we could gather at actually ended up not working out as we planned for this for this week. And so uh, we had to pivot last minute in order to um, host another virtual gathering, which is why you're uh, just listening to me today and we don't have a video teaching and we're not gathering in person. But um, we fully expect that this venue will be able to work for us in the coming weeks. So please stay tuned on Instagram, Facebook, and our website, and we'll give you the details as soon as we possibly can release them. We want to just make sure the agreement is in ink before we do any of that. So um, thank you for all of your understanding. This is coming from a place of us wanting to be a part of the solution by helping stop the spread of the virus. Of course, as you know, the state of Oregon is seen a big spike in uh, cases of coronavirus this week. And so again, our ambition is to um, be as flexible as possible um, and be a part of the solution, cooperative with the state as much as we can be, at, while at the same time prioritizing, engaging as the church of Jesus. Okay, so with that, let's launch in. Uh, Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for this chance that we have to learn the scriptures. And we ask, Father, that you would be with us and that you would strengthen us, um, that you would give us your heart, that we would know your way, that you would reveal yourself to us and that we would be shaped and transformed into your image. God, our world needs you right now. And we, you have sent us, your people, to be um, a, a wise, loving neighbors in response to everything that our world is facing right now. And so, God, I pray that you would use this time to be instructive and to and be inspiring. Shape us, God, uh, to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So like me, you've probably had a lot of conversations with either people in the church, people outside the church, people in your circle of influence, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, your friends, all of that. And if you're anything like me, you've been noticing this trend that we are getting fatigued by all of the uncertainty and unrest in our cultural moment. And this is the thing that I've noticed, that, that there's the news cycle is relentless and there's all kinds of uh, really uh, difficult things that we're facing. Of course, we don't know when everyone's getting back to work. A lot of us are back to work, but others of us, things have changed. Um, we don't necessarily know if there's going to be a second wave of the virus or not, or how serious that will be. When will the uh, vaccine be here? Again, all sorts of open questions that don't have concrete answers, and that's just bringing uncertainty, which of course leads to anxiety, a feeling of loss of control, and all kinds of other human conditions. We are complex beings, to say the least. And then on top of that, we have um, the unrest, social unrest around racial inequality and the outcry of the death of George Floyd and many other black Americans. And so in, we've been having this conversation the last several weeks as a church and we want to step into this in a wise way. But the, unfortunately, um, there's just a fatigue around these conversations because the answers are complex 
and um, we don't really have um, a, a clear way forward at the moment. And if you've follow, been following along, I truly believe that um, the sensible conversation isn't really happening on the large scale that I would hope it would. Instead, we're living in this toxic system, uh, unfortunately, with a lot of hostility and a lot of anger and a lot of hurt. And frankly, I understand where a lot of that is coming from, but I think it's incumbent on us, people um, who are the people of Jesus, to be able to go towards these issues with grace and love and wisdom uh, so that we can um, see a bright future and actually see God's kingdom come here on earth as in heaven. And so that's what we want to do today. All of these camps have emerged uh, around, you know, reopening around coronavirus. And then of course, with um, social inequality and everything else as well. And I, frankly, I, I know what people are looking for me to say. I know there are bandwagons that people want me to jump on, but the reality is, is that I am feeling drawn by the Spirit to not be baited into um, the hostile conversation and rather just want to look at Jesus and the Scriptures and let Him set the agenda, let Him steer the conversation and what the Scripture has to say, and then the Spirit will make application for us. Again, um, we are oftentimes swimming upstream doing unpopular, making un, unpopular comments um, in order to really highlight the way of Jesus. And so with that being said, today we're talking about Jesus's most radical idea, which is loving your enemy. We've talked about this in times past, and it's never been a popular topic. It's actually difficult to understand for sure, but Jesus, this is a, a, a linchpin of Jesus's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. So we're going to get into this uh, this conversation, but uh, firstly, just one more little disclaimer. This is the place for us to start. When we're talking about loving our enemies, Is the place to start is God's love for you. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and for, forever love. It's for you. It's the, the sort of the primary thing to keep in mind when we talk about practicing loving our neighbors and loving our enemies. And as we remain in his love by spending time in the scriptures and in listening prayer and just seeking the presence of God day in, day out, we become more secure in that love uh, for us that he has and in our identity in Christ. And then as we become more secure in our identity in Christ, we are able to give our loved selves away to our neighbors and even our enemies. So please hear everything that we're about to talk about from that lens, that you are passionately loved by Jesus. You didn't have to earn it. You don't have to do an awesome job in order to keep it. You are safe in the arms of, of God, and no one and nothing can separate you from his love as uh, Romans chapter 8 says. Now, uh, I venture to guess a number of you are already pretty on board with this teaching, and hopefully you're just going to enjoy the next couple of minutes where we explore the biblical text and be challenged by Jesus's invitation to follow him by loving our enemies. Others of us, though, have mixed reactions around this topic because this teaching is absurd to American ears. And by that, I mean 
It's this really central part of Jesus' teaching, as we're about to see. But we don't talk about enemy love much. In fact, I grew up in the Christian church. I, I, I listened to sermons my entire life. I went to Christian school even, memorized scripture, Adawana, all of this. And I cannot remember a, an actual exegetical from the teachings conversation about loving our enemies. And that's shocking, especially as we get into the biblical text. So for anyone who might be wrestling with this um, with this notion of loving your enemy, like welcome to the club. We're going to do our very best to just do some honest Bible work as much as possible and sort of work it out together. So you're not alone. We're in this together. Um, but what we're specifically praying for is that the Lord would help us to sort of shed some of our cultural ideas and um, our, our cultural values and that our, our values would be, would be bent around the word and around the spirit of God rather than um, our understanding of the scripture bent around our American values. Hopefully that makes sense. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 48. It's about 10 verses, the bulk of Jesus' teaching here on enemy love. This is what Jesus has to say. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand them over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said... Love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, that is such a heavy and just massive passage, and we're going to do our best to go through it together. Now, I think one of the reasons why this 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 idea of loving your neighbor, sound, or excuse me, loving your enemy sounds so absurd to American ears is because whether we understand it or know it or not, the Western worldview uh, has been shaped in part by Machiavellian ethics, right? Machiavelli was a Renaissance um, uh, sociologist or philosopher who um, who basically came up with the idea that life is dog eat dog. It's either kill or be killed. You got to look out for number one. And that's just how the Western world works. So we're trained in the West to destroy our enemy, annihilate our enemy. If your enemy strikes you, you retaliate or maybe even seek revenge. And in fact, uh, it's always fascinated me that one of our favorite movie plots has a core theme of vindication because they give us the freedom to sort of, I don't know, secretly live out our revenge fantasies. And um, 
I wish we had more time to talk about like just war theory and stuff like that today. But again, super fascinating. Um, Historically, the United States entered World War II primarily to resist a profound evil and to protect the innocents. And that's what, when you look at the history books, um, what uh, our entrance into World War II was all about. But when Americans look back, when we look back at World War II and World War II films and pop culture and all of that, we have this tendency to amplify our patriotism to be all about retribution. For example, I remember um, as I was getting ready to teach um, through Matthew 5 a couple of years ago, I saw this guy wearing a teaching or a t-shirt that said, go ahead and see what happens when you step on the stars and stripes. You know, it's like this very, uh, you know, demonstrative, um, excessive power and dominance narrative. So rather than being conflicted about having to use force to stop evil and to protect the innocents, there is this master narrative in the West that we celebrate America's excessive power to dominate the enemy. And fortunately, many people in our culture who have to either be deployed um, and they're in, in the military or they're a police officer, or whatever, they have wrestled this through a lot better than many of us have. They, they, um, they, uh, they have a healthy respect for the sanctity of, of, of human life and the use of force. But unfortunately, that Machiavellian idea of dog-eat-dog, it's kill-or-be-killed sort of a notion, that has infiltrated the ethics of the church as well. And I believe that in a lot of ways, that value has sort of um, um, twisted our reading of the scriptures. So what we want to do is to reconstruct Jesus's ethic, his master narrative of the kingdom, and it only works if we're doing it biblically. We don't have any interest in what I have to say or my own opinions or thoughts. We're really only interested in what the scripture has to say and what Jesus thinks about the subject. Now, and that's why I think point number one is so critical. Enemy love is the love of Jesus. Remember, Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And what motivated Jesus to go to the cross? It was love. So we have life in Jesus expressly because he was willing to die for me when I was his enemy. So following Jesus' example means that we're acknowledging our American and Machiavellian biases and submitting to the whole team teaching of scripture. This idea is like, we just want to live our whole Bibles, right? So when I read the gospels, Jesus's life and his teaching is upside down from the world's way of doing things. Matthew 5 verse 38, we just read it. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's by the way, that's Bible. That's that's Exodus. That's the law that Israel was living under at the time. In short, this was like the Old Testament way of limiting retaliation. Because in the ancient context, eye for an eye was a mild way of responding to evil. In the ancient context, if someone took your eye, you take both their eyes and a few teeth for good measure. <laughs> like that's how it worked. You pay back evil excessively. So Jesus is essentially reclaiming the heart of the Torah and taking it one radical step further. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Do not retaliate force with force. So eye for an eye takes it radically um, a few steps forward. 
So we have to understand what Jesus is it means by this word resist. Otherwise, we'll totally miss the point. So the word resist is the Greek word anesthemai, and it refers to violent military resistance. So to anesthemai is to kill your enemy. And that is really the consistent usage across the ancient world. It's is it's anesthemai is to is to risk is to resist it's to violently and um, uh, mil- even militarily um, contend against your enemy. So Jesus isn't saying don't resist evil. He's saying don't resist evil by using violence. So to the Jesus follower, this is the call, like stand up to evil, confront evil absolutely, but don't resist through a show of force. Now, this again is where we start to get lost in our American mindset because we're used to the violent, dominant, excessive, forced, anesthemi way of the world that we have been brought up in. But as we continue, Jesus gives us a handful of examples of what he means and how to resist evil the Jesus way. And it doesn't look anything like the way of the world. Um, So we're just going to look at two of them. There's more, but we're just going to look at two. He says this. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Right? So uh, turn the other cheek. This is, of course, uh, a metaphor that we are used to hearing about, especially if you are um, uh, you've been a Christian for any length of time. Uh, and I can speak from experience. There's a few times where, uh, when I was in college on the island of Maui, where I had local Hawaiian dudes want to pick a fight. And it's not easy when you're getting punched to turn the other cheek. But it's not just about physical violence. Um, there are many other ways that people do violence and do evil and do chaos against us. And that's mainly emotionally. And in my view, it's way, way harder to turn the other cheek in that sort of a scenario when people are doing evil to us in an emotional way. But to Jesus, this is how you want to resist evil in the kingdom of God, is by turning the other cheek. Now, um, it's often when when this conversation is it's, like I said, it's not very often we talk about this in the church, but often when it is talked about in the church, we talk about it in terms of passivism. It's passivism, which it is passivism in a way, but that idea has to be sort of, has been sort of hijacked by like alternative political groups and, and people like that. But Jesus's point is completely upside down from the way of the world. His point is that turning the other cheek is a form of action. It's not actually passivism. It's a form of action. It's an intentional, purpose, purposeful, non-violent resistance that tears down and pushes back evil. It actually has more power than anesthemi does. It has more power than violence and more evil does. So what is perceived as weakness in the name of Jesus has a strange new power to subvert evil. And I think the best example of this that that I know of is um, this the story of Louis Zamperini. If you're familiar um, with the book, um, Louis Zamperini's story is so fascinating. I think it's the book's called Unbroken. Zamperini is this Italian uh, American guy who was a, a, an Olympic runner, and he uh, decided to enter into the Air Force. And he actually um, his plane went down over the Pacific and was um, eventually captured uh, by the Japanese. And he was in a a Japanese prisoner of war camp, and he was subjected to um, this ruthless 
um, uh, a prisoner of war um, captain who who was turned out to be a sadist, and he just loved to torture, in particular, this man Zamperini. And people lined up one after one after one to to punch him, to hit him. They they had him race around the camp because they heard that he was an, a, an Olympian. And so they starved him, beat him within an inch of his life, and then made him race the other prisoners. They, they beat him ruthlessly. And Zamperini never retaliated. He never fought back. And this is his peaceful uh, plan to challenge injustice. And that's only the beginning of the story. After the war, um, Zamperini had PTSD and um, fell into alcoholism, but an elastic effort ends up at a Billy Graham rally, and in and he uh, becomes a Jesus follower, and his life is completely turned upside down, and he learns what it means to be forgiven and what it means to forgive. And so, in the 1980s, he finds out that this man, who this sadist, the the man who had uh, tortured him all those years in the prisoner of war camp, um, that he was known as, as the bird. He he finds out that he's still alive, and he he wants to meet him to express his forgiveness. And so uh, in the in the 1990s, Louis is still alive. At this point, he's in his 80s, and he's invited to carry the Olympic torch in Japan, and he carries the the Olympic torch and and runs past the very prisoner of war camp where had where he had been held captive and tortured for those years and he reaches while he's in Japan he reaches out to the bird in order to extend forgiveness to him it's just this incredible incredible story about redemption and enemy love so the first 350 pages of that book Zamperini is just getting pummeled but in the end who wins the fight is it is it the bird or is it Zamperini well of course it's 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 new it's no contest Zamperini had a power from Jesus that tore down and pushed back a terrible evil and we are being invited to join Jesus in overcoming evil with good. Not just non-retaliation as passivism, but non-retaliation as a radical way of enemy love and forgiveness. And again, this is a crazy counter-cultural, counter-intuitive idea, and it's definitely not um, our culture. For example, Hollywood went on to um, uh, write and direct a movie about Zamperini's story and life. Angelina Jolie was the the writer and the director, and he um, they 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 told most of the story, but they didn't tell the end of the story. They they omitted the story of him coming to Jesus and forgiving the bird, which is the real power of the story. But Hollywood completely missed its redemptive power because they didn't see how the way of Jesus uh, brings this, uh, this incredible subversive power over evil. Now, turning the other cheek, of course, is the way of Jesus. And we can't expect necessarily the world to see it, but the people of Jesus are the ones who see the redemptive radical power of God in the unexpected. Second example of how to resist evil according to Jesus is to 
go the extra mile, go the extra mile. Now, this is another metaphor, of course, or idiom that we hear all the time in our culture, but the origin of that expression is Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them too. So here's the context of what he's saying. In the first century, Rome occupied Israel, and Roman soldiers would stop Israelites commonly in their tracks and make them carry their heavy packs to wherever they were going. And it was one of the ways that the Roman asserted their dominance and shamed the populations that they were occupying. We use the Israelites, in other words, like donkeys. But we'll make, we're making uh, these Israelites carry our stuff. And it was insult to injury. So the, the Israelites were looking for the Messiah, and they were waiting for the Messiah to free them from this shameful captivity. But Jesus comes on the scene and teaches something completely different. So we can't miss what's going on here, right? This we're, we're lit. This is a time where the Israelites are being publicly shamed and oppressed by the Romans, and they're looking for this religious leader, the Messiah, the anointed one, to free them from this captivity. And Jesus says, sisters and brothers, if he forces you to go one mile, and he says, okay, that's enough. You can be done now. Double it. Take it twice as far as he tells you to go, right? So this is about being willing to go above and beyond to accommodate your enemy. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, who's one of my favorite go-to leadership guys, he says, you know that you're a servant of God by how you react when someone treats you like one. Let me repeat that. You know that you're a servant of God by how you react when someone treats you like one. So from the lens of the world, that's it's shameful. It's demeaning. Your enemy is dominating you. But really, from the Jesus kingdom lens, you're stripping your enemy of his power by willingly giving him double of what he wants from you. Right? So that's overcoming evil with good. So what could be perceived as weakness is actually like a meekness. It's, a, it's, a, it's got this strange new power to undermine evil and push forward God's kingdom. Again, verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5 says, you've heard it said, love your enemy, or excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and bless those who persecute you. Now, it's very common, again, like I've been saying since the beginning of this conversation, that in American evangelicalism, we want to push this to the fringes of our practice because it's so radical and it's very hard to deal with. Love your enemy, bless those who persecute you. We want to say, yeah, but who's our enemy and how can we really be nonviolent in our resistance of evil? But enemy love is central in Jesus's message and vocation. It's a part of Jesus's vocation. In fact, Jesus goes on to live out these words, love your enemy, bless those who persecute you on his way to the cross while he is breathing his last breath. So this is what I love about Jesus' teaching. He's always the prime example. Everything he's inviting us to do, he's the pioneer. And this is what the cross is all about. Jesus is subverting the powers of evil and overcoming evil with good. Not by dominating his enemies through excessive force, but by absorbing violence on the cross. By willingly accepting violence against him, by letting his enemies kill him, he claimed victory over the kingdom of darkness. So, Um, Here's how that works biblically, from a biblical framework. 
If you're familiar with the story of the Gospels, you know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's a hard name to say, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls out a fishing knife and tries to kill one of the guys arresting Jesus. You guys remember this story. It's like this last final attempt that Peter has, and it's a valiant effort. He, he, he takes on the Roman Empire by grabbing out his fishing knife and trying to uh, slice uh, and, and, and kill Jesus's enemy, but he ends up just chopping off the guy's ear. And do you remember what Jesus replied in Matthew's gospel? He says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he'll at once bring at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, Peter, if I were trying to escape capture, if I were trying to overthrow Rome, we'd have plenty of firepower. Like, I'm letting my enemies kill me. I'm absorbing evil because the Father is bringing victory through it. And this is central to the gospel. And he says something really, Jesus says something really similar to Pilate in the next morning. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Right? And Jesus says, yeah, I am which were fighting words. Those were fighting words because the entire paradigm for kings and kingdoms in the first century was military dominance, overpowering power with power. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest, but my kingdom is from another place. So the kingdom of God is breaking in through this non-retaliation and non-violence. It's not weakness as it's perceived to be. It's power that burst through the grave and overcame evil and began a movement that the world has never seen before. Think about the explosive power that Jesus' cross introduced into the world. Way more power than any use of force or violence, right? Like I said, this is actually not just a fringe idea. This is the, the pioneering ethic of love in the New Testament. It's a central theme in the Bible. Paul teaches about how, so we're saying, we're saying that, that Jesus' non-retaliatory love is somehow, um, somehow has power uh, in this prevailing power. And so Paul teaches about how that's the case, how Jesus overcomes evil through his sacrificial death. But, it, he, but the way that Paul frames it is exactly how it is. He, he frames it ironically, paradoxically, because the crucifixion was so shaming and, and, and dehumanizing that there's no way you could look, about it, look at it as a victory, uh, especially in the first century. But look at what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15 says. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, speaking of uh, his cross, and resurrection, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So by absorbing violence on the cross, instead of inciting more violence in the language of Paul, he killed evil. He killed death. He killed hostility. And now we have peace. That is profound paradox. And again, the, the words put to death their hostility is intentionally forceful because the love of Jesus, which was in one sense passive, was actually a major action, excessive power against evil, so much so that it killed evil and death and hostility. I love that. Uh, very similarly, Colossians chapter 2 
speaking of the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Again, the cross was a shameful way to die. So if we're reading this for all that it's worth, we're going, no, 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 Jesus' cross wasn't a triumph, but the way that the scriptures tell it, is that Jesus' death on the cross is actually not shaming him. It's shaming the corrupt powers because he's absorbing evil and triumphing over death. This is a beautiful theme. It's all throughout the Bible. We call it the triumph theme in enemy love. And you're going to start, now that you know that it exists, you're going to start seeing it all over the place. And my favorite metaphor that Jesus uses to illustrate the triumph theme is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, where he's um, talking about his struggle, the kingdom of God's struggle against the kingdom of darkness. And this is what he says, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house, right? So again, this is a parable or a short story that Jesus is using to um, illustrate his, his point, uh, metaphor to illustrate a concrete reality. But think about that. In, in this scenario that Jesus is proposing, he's the robber. He's tying up Satan and he's plundering his stuff. And how does he do that? He does it by absorbing evil and violence on the cross. It's this crazy, again, paradox. I hope you're able to see this paradox. It's this radical action that has excessive power to completely change the world by overthrowing evil and violence. And it's through this uh, unexpected means of actually absorbing that violence. So the last book of the Bible, um, Revelation. It's a book that many of us will freely admit is difficult to understand. But, it's, but simply stated, Revelation is written to reveal Jesus as the faithful witness of God, the one who conquered, and to encourage Christians to live as faithful witnesses of Jesus in a world that opposes him and opposes the kingdom of God. So uh, the focal point of Revelation, um, the, really the, the center of, of this understanding of the book of Revelation is actually chapter 5. And there's this dramatic, symbolic moment where a scroll descends from heaven for the people of the world, but no one is worthy to open the scroll. So think about that. God it has a word for you, but you can't receive the word because you're not worthy to open it up and, and to read it. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, it says this, one of the elders, uh, which you don't have the time to go into all the backstory, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, has triumphed, and he is able to scroll, uh, to open the scroll and its seven seals. Right? So the image of Jesus is this ferocious lion. It's an image of power and rule. And he's of Judah. He's a king. He has triumphed. And the next verse, and what Michael Gorman, a, a scholar on, on Revelation, says that is the most mind-wrenching rebirth of images in all of literature. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So what this scripture is depicting is a double take. On first look, it's the lion, the tribe of Judah. On second look, it's 
the lamb slain standing at the center of the throne. So the focal point of Revelation forges a new symbol of triumph by sacrificial death. Again, uh, Michael Gorman, uh, scholar on Revelation, says it like this, the shock of the reversal, lion and lamb, discloses the central mystery of the revelation or the apocalypse. God overcomes the world, not through a show of force, but through suffering and death of Jesus. And the invitation of Revelation is to follow the lamb into the new creation. And that's exactly what the people of Jesus in the book of Revelation go on to do. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, they, the Jesus followers, have conquered him, that is Satan and the kingdom of darkness, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Man, this is such a radical message. So this is how the people of Jesus see love. Self-giving enemy love is how you resist evil and how you advance the kingdom of God on the earth. So here's the challenge of Jesus' teaching that he's actually inviting us to wrestle through together then. Do you trust him? Do you trust him that enemy love is more powerful and more effective at triumphing over evil than your ability to fight for your own interests? What's more powerful, love or force, or love or violence? If your enemy is hungry, Jesus says, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12 verse 20 and 21. Hebrews chapter 10, another scripture on this subject. Again, this is just one of the ways um, that we have to establish this as a deeply biblical idea because um, we're so prone to read the scriptures through a Machiavellian lens. Hebrews chapter 10, Recall the former days when you, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This message of radical enemy love is about laying down our rights and being joyfully accepting the blundering of our property. You know, it's funny. There's a lot of, uh, it's a socially Christian thing to do to hang up verses in our in our houses. And I'm in my house right now and there are scriptures hanging on my wall as well. But I've never seen Hebrews chapter 10, verse 33, joyfully accepting the blundering of your property written on anyone's walls. <laughs> because it's a radical idea. And 1 Peter chapter 2, um, this is one of the last scriptures, I promise. It's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And this is what you were called because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges. It's such a powerful word. Judgment is coming. It's not mine to judge 
or to reout or to retaliate or to repay. I don't need to replay my revenge fantasies in my mind. To this I was called to follow the cross-shaped example that Jesus gave me. Now, here's the final question for today. Is that is this what Christians in the West are known for? To have this sort of radical self-giving enemy love. Yeah, those Jesus people, they love their enemies. Sadly, the answer to that is is no. And it's usually around this point in the conversation that a lot of people will voice their objections. What about violence in the Old Testament? There's all kinds of violence there. And what about all of the like hypothetical intruders or the nuances or the complexities to, the, to this conversation? And I'll, and I'll admit, there are a lot of complexities to this conversation. And we don't want to be naive to them. We're living in a very difficult time. And my heart goes out to local governments and police officers who are just doing what they can to serve and protect the community. But here's what I have to say about about this, is that sure, there are going to be very far there's going to be outliers to this conversation there's going to be exceptions to the rule but non-violent non-retaliatory counterintuitive countercultural sacrificial enemy love should be the most dominant most pervasive rhythm of evangelical christianity there's a quote from preston sprinkle who wrote a great book called fight and this is the this is the the the, the the prevailing pervasive rhythm of evangelical Christianity. Can you find an exception to the rule? Maybe. I would be willing to, I'm willing to say maybe. Yeah, there's, there's probably an exception here or there. But we're not supposed to be looking for those exceptions. We're supposed to be living into this prevailing rhythm that Jesus gave us the example of non-retaliatory enemy love. This is what Jesus teaches us. I tell you, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. Your children may be father, that you may be children of your father in heaven. And so I think where we leave off is to just say, Holy Spirit, would you make application of all this today? There's a lot of things being thrown out on social media There's a lot of camps being formed, a lot of battle lines being drawn, a lot of um, inflammatory rhetoric on the internet, um, some by some of our highest leaders. But for us, we want to be the people of Jesus who trust, who trust in God, anchor all of our, 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 our actions and our behavior and our lifestyle Anchor it in the theology of God, who he is and what he's like. So loving your enemy is ultimately trusting God and who he says he is. This is what Jesus did. And this is who Jesus says he is. So do you have the courage? Do you, do you have the faith to live into this radical calling? To turn the world upside down by the power of the kingdom? What Michael Gorman calls lamb power. It's the power of the lamb. It's trusting God's heart. I have worth and value despite living with people who oppose me. 
to trust in God's justice, that he's going to be the one who repays. Trust in the paradox of the cross. The proud will be humble, but the humble will be exalted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is our invitation. Do you trust that the lion, the ferocious reigning king who rules with peace, has come to us in the form of the sacrificial lamb? It's because of his love towards us while we are his enemies that we get to experience his love today and be made children of the Father. So let's prove ourselves to be children of the Father by loving in the same way Jesus has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this theme in Scripture that is so redemptive, so paradoxical, so, if you will, ironic. The way that you advance the kingdom, the way that you overthrow evil is with good. And it might seem to the world, to Hollywood, to our culture, to Machiavellian-style ethics, to be pacifist. And there is a, a sense of that that's true, but it's so much more than just pacifism. It's the, it's the sense of, no, 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 this is how the real power breaks into the world. Lamb power, this is how real power breaks into the world through non-retaliatory enemy love. So God, make us this kind of people. Work in our hearts, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. Grace and peace.